0: Thanks so much for tuning your radio dial to 89.3 FM for Arts Underground. I'm your host, Katie Gannaway, here at the cozy Piper and Leaf Low Mill location with our guest, Sue Ann Griffith. Hello, Sue Ann. Hey. So she has been hard at work preserving interesting Huntsville history through the podcast Lily Flags Signal. Sue will give us a deeper dive today on the host herself and what we are learning. So before we talk about your podcast, I want to get to know you a little bit, Sue You are one of those sort of students of life. You are a professor of life and a professor at Auburn University. How did you start to fall in love with Huntsville's history? Well, I um, grew up
1: here, and I remember in like kindergarten we had a walking tour that we went on, and it was just historic Huntsville fun facts. And uh, surprisingly, as a six-year-old, it still held my attention. So I guess you know you got something good if it's holding like a child's attention for that long. And I kind of those stories stuck with me, um, like the backwards house. That one became a whole episode in the podcast. Um, Lily Flag the cow came the name for the podcast and also an episode, and it just always those were in the back of my mind and then when i was old enough to volunteer as a um, tour guide and i learned the blacksmith at constitution hall park started doing as much as i could to learn and then share those stories
0: I want you to talk more about sharing that knowledge, because you have that passion to learn about Huntsville's history yourself, but then to go out and share it.
1: Yeah, so I, my day job, and you mentioned in Auburn University, I teach remotely right now for them in the computer engineering department, so completely unrelated, but I really love getting to teach stuff and see like people's eyes light up when they you know, learn something new or they're like, Oh, I just connected that with something. And, and really on a podcast, I normally can't see people's faces when they're hearing me, which may be for the better. Um, they can't see my face, which is definitely for the better. But I, uh, I still get to teach people things and I'll have people message me saying, Oh, I driven by that building so many times and didn't know that. Or I knew that street was named after them, but I didn't know why. And that I think is the most encouraging thing is when people say they learned something cool. And I don't know if there's a word for that emotion, but other than like excitement, but it's just a really fun thing for me to know that, hey, these hours I spent reading stuff are paying off, not just for me, but for other people.
0: Besides that outreach, other sort of joys of your life I know include making your own clothes that are sort of period correct for certain times and playing with all your cats who are incredibly adorable and also dressing up your geese. Of all the joys in your life I want you to talk about <laughs> what what's making you happiest.
1: So, say all, all of those things, um, I, you mentioned the, the clothing, I just want everyone, because you're hearing this on the radio, I did dress up for a radio interview, and I feel like that, <laughs> you should judge me for that, I'm judging me for that.
0: I'm not judging um, you for that. But
1: but they are, as I say, in, in homemade stuff, um, and I do have seven cats now, found found a new cat in the past month or two, like literally found outside, all of my cats are found or foster fails, um, and they do help, you sometimes can hear meows in the background um, of the podcast, and so therefore, they are my co-hosts, and they occasionally will show <laughs> (laughs) up in the in the show's Instagram um, especially if they're sitting on like the book I'm trying to read Uh, love that Uh, one shoes on the microphone um, but the the goose I need to talk about the goose so around the
0: time goose I'm sorry I said geese before my bad
1: so far one goose I don't know It might be like the cats if I just find a goose like I'll dumpster (laughs) dive and find another it's a plastic goose I should clarify this is not a live goose in my house Um, the plastic geese um, I kind of fell in love with them just in general the the silliness of it but uh, my friend Miranda bought me one around when the Untitled Goose Game came out. And so she got she got me a plastic goose for Christmas with some outfits. So I dress up to match the goose sometimes, because I can sew, sew clothes. The, the goose has a dirndl for Oktoberfest season that matches my homemade dirndl. We've done breakfast at Tiffany's with the goose. That's actually my photo and Zoom. So when I have a Zoom meeting, if I don't have my camera turned on, people see me dressed up matching a goose, uh, which is a great introduction. I'm going to do a St. Patrick's goose. I just I, I like making them clothing, which is makes it sound like I'm, you know, it's crazy. I do have friends in a social life. I don't just dress up geese and play with cats all day um, and then sit in the library and read a bunch. So, I mean, those are, that's what I do a lot of the time, but I also drink a lot of tea, <laughs> hence us interviewing at a tea shop.
0: I can confirm she does have a lot of friends. Um, (laughs) So the next thing I want to ask you is what is your MO in life? Like on the, on the podcast, you constantly say cite your sources. That's a big thing for you, of course. But besides that, what would you say is your MO? So
1: I would say that on the citing the sources that I think comes from, because I'm a professor like that, that, um, that kind of background there. But well, that's, a good, that's a good question. I always wanted to be an astronaut. This is my, my sob story. I wanted to be an astronaut. I was getting my doctorate in engineering so that I could go be an astronaut um, in my head. I was like, oh, it's just like two steps. You get the doctorate and then you become an astronaut. And about a month before my last set of final exams for the doctorate, I was diagnosed with heart disease, which meant I needed a defibrillator, which meant I needed medicine, which meant I could not go to space. And I was like, well, now what do I do with my life? And I was I'm a professor. like I made, made it work. I, I, found, I surprisingly found a job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm employable. And I have friends. Um, Sorry, when you tell people you have a podcast, they kind of look at you funny. And I would just like to clarify, I do, in fact, um, do other things. I would say really just teaching people whatever weird, interesting things I can, whether that's, you know, related to history or not. I think that's my, my, my thing is what it's become. That and showing them photos of my cats. And now I get to talk about the wackiest part of the space race's impact on Huntsville. The tourism, or more specifically, the failed tourist trap. While we're all probably, hopefully, presumably familiar with the U.S. Space and Rocket Center and Space Camp, did you know there was almost a space-themed amusement park planned for Huntsville in the early 60s? It was to be called Space City USA, out near what's now Zert Road between Huntsville and Madison off of the aforementioned I-565. A company called Space Race USA Incorporated popped up, hired a lot of planners for an amusement park, got some hype going, sold stocks, and then everything fell apart. The plans for the theme park were announced in January of 1964, and the excitement around the project was huge. From what the public was seeing at first, it looked like things were progressing well. Robert Cox, the public relations director for Space City USA, traveled around giving talks about how great the park would be and how Skylim, the company in charge of design and construction, was following in the footsteps of Disneyland. In 1964, there were auditions for, quote, talent to be used during the summer months, end quote, at the park. There were CBS and NBC talent scouts judging the auditions, and supposedly they were offering recording contracts and TV appearances to the best acts
0: now is the time we will get into the lily flags signal podcast you started that back in september last year which is 2022 uh as of the recording today is groundhog day that is february 2nd 2023 in your podcast you said you spend at least 15 hours a week researching for this podcast so after the finished product is out what sort of feedback are you getting from listeners and how did they help shape your podcast
1: so the first episode when i started making it i expected maybe five big big goal ten people to ever listen to it like this was very much just so i wouldn't feel guilty about the amount of time i was spending reading these things it's like oh no it's for it's for a purpose i'm sharing it um because i love doing that feedback wise a lot of people have had stories either related to them or like their parents grandparents saying oh we met that person once or oh my dad used to go to church with that person you mentioned and I you know never knew this about them, and then I talked to them, and now you know making connections within the community, which is also a huge part of history, is like how we got to where we are. Another thing people have been doing, I'm actually going to do a listener request episode because I've gotten so many just small questions, uh, important but small, like easy to answer, like I couldn't spend a full episode discussing. Where people will just say, "Hey, I heard about this thing. Is it true?" Which is my other going back to the citing sources. My other like favorite thing is, "Is this really a myth, or did this really happen?" And a lot of the times, if something is a myth, the real story is just as fun, if not cooler than whatever the myth was. It's just like, oh, that the the shortened version was easier to tell, but you're missing some of the cool stuff. So that's a lot of the feedback is people asking for like clarifications on stories they grew up hearing.
0: In your research and your debunking, do you do you have a sort of confidant um, who you run these stories by? Uh, do you have a sort of uh, criteria or measurement of what? goes into each episode? So sometimes it's
1: just, can I find enough sources? But I'll also sometimes just mention to people, hey, um," like in the case of the trolleys, I'm like, hey, would you like to hear about streetcars? Like, if it was cool, would you listen to that? (laughs) Um, And I'll give an example. The trolley episode just came out um, about a week and a half ago. And I was like, hey, did you know that they, when they opened the streetcar system, they put an entire performing band on the streetcar and rode that around with the mayor and a bunch of the, uh, the aldermen, which were like city council back in the day. And I said that, and everyone I've just kind of offhand mentioned that to was like, what? That's so weird. It's like, cool, good reaction. All right, that's going in. Um, so that's kind of, I'll just drop things in conversation and then see if people like zone out in the two sentences I say, and if they don't, I'm like, all right, well, that's, we're keeping that. <laughs>
0: From what you've read and seen, um, you have to pour through pages and pages and pages and pages of documents and go through all kinds of artifacts in the archives and uh, to really get you know, an understanding of what you're going to write out for your script. So I have to assume there are some ways that you might wish that things are documented differently or recorded differently.
1: Yes. So the archive teams everywhere in Huntsville that I've dealt with have been awesome at dealing with this the amount of paper some people leave behind. So I was like, it's more all of my complaints are towards the people like in the 1800s. Like, uh, I wish you had written more of this down or made more notes. Um, like, I would just, if you're out there and you think literally anything in your life is even mildly important, please just, just write a journal. Just everybody. That, that's, um, that would make my life easier. If we could time travel and tell everybody back then, like, hey, write this down. Um, newspapers are a great source, um, so thank you to everybody who doesn't throw out their old newspapers. I guess because um, the library has a lot of those. The, as well as some people did keep really detailed documents of like spending reports. Um, I have one um, one that I was reading uh, Thomas Fern, who is a doctor. He owned the waterworks for a while in the mid 1800s. That man tracked down to the like quarter of a cent every. Bit of money he spent for years, Um, which was fun because I could see like, oh, a pen cost 13 cents in early 1840s. Um, Can everyone please be that meticulous so that when I'm researching, I can find like every detail I've ever wanted. Something I had to adjust to seeing in the newspapers of the 1800s was the abundance of just very overly personal news, like so and so is in town this week, staying with so and so, or this person is going to attend this party, or insert name will be an insert place for a few days contrast this with how under so many articles posted by local news sources you'll see comments nowadays like how is this news or who cares there's more important stuff to talk about i wouldn't be surprised if newspapers in the victorian era elicited similar responses but also this was the norm in nearly every newspaper at the time my point here is that haters are gonna hate
0: So, Lily Flag Signal, you've also called it a hipster podcast in one of your episodes. (laughs) And I would assume that's because, and you know, it's not good to assume, but if I were to assume, that would be because it's rich in puns, it has hot tips and takes on Huntsville history, and figures in Huntsville history, and each episode begins and ends with a twist on the Westminster chimes. This is an odd question, but I, I know that you'll answer it perfectly. If the podcast were anthropomorphized what outfit would it wear and what personality traits would it have? See, I was going to say
1: it would be a cow, but that's not what that question means. Um, It
0: could be a cow if you wanted it to be a cow. (laughs) It's your
1: podcast. I, I think, so because it is just me working on it, I feel like if, if the podcast was a person, like, it would be me, because you're getting to hear my bad puns, my weird <laughs> sense of humor, um, et etc. I, I would say, though, um, so the reason I originally called it a hipster podcast was um, partly because I was making fun of myself, um, which is a huge part of the, like I said, if it was a person, it would make fun of itself, too. Um, like, I try to be self-aware. Like, when I, I don't tell people I have a podcast. Like um, I'm like, I'll let them find that out on their own, because I don't want to sound like one of those people but uh
0: listen to my podcast please yeah Yeah. like
1: and subscribe uh no but really no I'm kidding (laughs) but um so I I feel like that would that would be a huge part of it but the hipster part came from um Spotify unwrapped everyone's either best friend or worst nightmare depending on how uh many of your different Spotify playlists are hidden. All of mine are, no, you know. But uh, when that came up, they do that for um, podcasts on Spotify and tells you about your listeners. And it. The, all of the descriptions that it gave me, it was like, your listeners are into niche things. And like every single description, I was like, you're just politely telling me that only hipsters can listen listen to this show. Like I feel like I feel like Spotify is trying to like fake gatekeep my podcast. So that's where the, the hipster thing
0: originated. I guess going in the same vein as the the hipster angle here. Uh, <laughs> maybe not, maybe not. The thumbnails for each show <laughs> feature a as you described it, I am this is not my wording, poorly photoshopped cow, correct? Yes, though, and, I have a confession. And... Wait, and you adorn them with things like train conductor hats, and in the background, they'll be like train tracks. It's just, it's extravagantly quirky, and I love it. It's I've challenged myself to make the tackiest
1: looking logo, because <laughs> um, my theory was I can either pour a lot of effort into making this art, or I could pay somebody who is good at art, um, good at graphic design to make these. And those are both like very valid, awesome things, but I'm just one person doing this as a hobby. And so I was like, all right, what can I make? And I realized there was no way to make something that was both beautiful and done in under five minutes. Um, So I opened, actually I say Photoshop and that's technically a lie, I do it in PowerPoint because that's somehow even worse. Um, I actually, all of the logos are made in, I have a PowerPoint uh, deck on my computer that every single slide is just weird, clip art on top of cow <laughs> photos and that's um that's where that's coming from and it actually it slowly has morphed as I put more and more effort into the show and it's like more than five people listen now I was like oh well I should um we have passed at least six listeners um we're now at the point where I do put like 10 minutes 20 minutes into that into that ugly logo every yeah. time
0: they have morphed over <laughs> over the months <laughs>
1: Another section that I've seen in many papers from this era, and earlier, are the jokes. They'll be mostly one-liners, with credit given to either a reader who submitted them or to the paper from which they were borrowed. As an example from this January 1893 edition I've been going off of, you've got the following. Quote, the roll call is frequently heard at the Bakers, Baltimore American, end quote. I love that pun. I will be using that pun. Above that, there's a little note about how supposedly sharks won't attack a person whose feet are moving, so if you just keep kicking and treading water when you see a shark, it'll leave you alone. I, I don't think that's how this works at all. Uh, scattered amongst these, quips are, of course, ads designed to look like quips. Don't neglect a cough. Take some Hale's honey of Whorehound and tar and stanchier. Pike's toothache drops cure in one minute, is presented in the list directly before the bread pun, for instance. But these jokes shared from other sources, combined with questionable advice they want you to save for later, those are memes. Newspapers publishing jokes and questionable life hacks that they saw in other newspapers,
0: that's literally the Victorian equivalent of sharing memes. So, some amazing peculiar elements that I enjoyed from your podcast, Sue Ann, were Huntsville's four-year gap in the 1800s without a mayor, the dried umbilical cord pieces found in a knit drawstring pouch at the library, and a lavish party celebrating Lily Flag that didn't even have the cow there. So can you tell us the top three things that you learned in researching for Lily Flag's signal? Some things that surprised you or, you know, confirmed suspicions? So the the
1: cow one, I think was the biggest one because you always um, hear like on tours for the longest time. and this was when I was little, you probably has been corrected since then. but that first tour I went on in kindergarten, they said that the cow was there in the yard and she was like the centerpiece of the tour. sorry the centerpiece of the party and when I went back through all of the newspaper articles they got really in depth about like the beautiful sky and -and so-and-so was there with so-and-so and and the socialites and all this detail and everyone's mentioned a cow and I just feel like if I was my job was to write about a party and there was a cow in the middle of the dance floor like I would I would at least slide that in there at the end, um, and I I asked some other historians like in town, um, had have you found any evidence of this? And they said no, and that was kind of like this has changed my life. Um, <laughs> Lily Flag also was disqualified from some of the World's Fair uh, competitions in 1893, so she actually she won the butter production uh contest like she was just in Huntsville and they were just measuring that it wasn't like a blue ribbon world <laughs> fair that set off all of this um so many misconceptions about a cow and I know that that's not the biggest most important thing because I've also learned about um people like Zini Pruitt and uh, sometimes her name is spelled Xenia. she was a formerly enslaved woman who was an award-winning baker she like n- uh, statewide c- competitions with her food and she was the one who catered it and it was like how have I never heard about her when I'm learning about the story. So I finding about people that were involved to stories, maybe weren't getting told because they were stories getting overshadowed by say the cow, um, <laughs> in that case. And I've loved that challenge as well as, um, the stories that, as we're getting into the ep- more and more into the episodes, I've moved on from those things I heard in that kindergarten tour. Obviously, like the, into more stuff like the streetcars, and you mentioned the the gap where there was no mayor for four years, where they just elected aldermen, and there was no rule for technically who was going to be the, like the big guy within the aldermen. Um, and then you could tell, like, four years later, they fixed that in the law. And I'm sure they had a hierarchy, right? Like, it's not like there was just chaos, but just realizing, hey, they, in the early 1800s, no one no one thought to include that as an official rule, um, those kind of things. But I, I'm moving beyond just the tour stuff now and having to challenge myself, like, oh, I got to find something for this episode, which is making me, like, go out and learn things that, you know, otherwise I probably would have never looked into if it wasn't for the show.
0: Sort of going off on what you just talked about. I'd like you to expand on the importance of including those Huntsville voices that often are overlooked or uh, just not mentioned in the narrative, for example, and, you know, help build the history of Huntsville. So, for example, you talk about the child laborers in our mills, which we are currently in one of those mills that you talk about on the podcast, Low Mill, um, or editors and owners of various black newspapers like Charles Henley and Henry Benford.
1: Yes, and those are um, all groups, both the um, like poor kids who were working as well as the Black Business District in Huntsville. I actually, by the time this episode comes, or this, there might be an episode out already by the time this interview comes out, um, about that. Because there's a man named uh, Chauncey Robinson who has started a project to... Uh, identify all of these businesses, business owners, and get their stories told because that's an important part of Huntsville history. And because of a lot of those buildings not being there anymore, people aren't as aware of it as, say, Harrison Brothers, which I love Harrison Brothers. That building is still standing. That name is still there. There's a historical marker on the sidewalk where people walk. Like You see that all the time. Um, And so I love uh, getting to learn and, and shed light on those stories because... People whose stories aren't told—they still lived here. They were still making huge impacts, and so I want to make sure they don't get forgotten. Um, okay, so cheesy quote—it's and I, it's been attributed to a lot of different people. I'm not who actually—not sure who actually said it—but there's a thing about like people die twice: once when they like you know like physically like, die, and another when people stop saying their name. And I sat on that for a while, and I was like, okay, so rich and famous old white dudes, essentially, in, in history are a lot of times the people who get to be immortal, and that didn't sit right with me. So that's kind of always in the back of my head.
0: Definitely having that goal of going beyond what's on the plaque that you can read any given day. Right. And there are some historical
1: markers um, as well that we get so used to walking past that you don't kind of read them and you don't realize like the um, Frank James, Jesse James's brother having a trial in downtown Huntsville. I do not know how many times I walked past that plaque. And then I realized like, oh, Calhoun House. And this is corner of Green and Eustis downtown um, and that was a few years ago, and then when I was looking for podcast episodes, i sometimes I'll just look at historical markers and be like, okay, which not that people aren't aware of Frank James and Jesse James, but just as an example of like, you see that the black business district actually has a historical marker, but it's off like not where somebody, there's not really like a sidewalk there. It's in front of WHT, and that's just not really an intersection where people are walking as much as say to the downtown square. The year was 1935, and Pierce was running Huntsville's Register, another newspaper, when quote, complaints from 17 to 20 Franklin County farmers, end quote, in Winchester, Tennessee came in, accusing him of trying to trick them out of their money. The official charge was obtaining money under false pretenses, as Pierce was selling ads for special TVA editions of his paper, and many people claimed he was presenting himself as a TVA employee selling stock and not a newspaper employee. The printed quote following Pierce's arrest and bail was, quote, I will be vindicated, end quote. Anyhow, in January 1936, he and E.H. Roach, his secretary, were found guilty of 17 counts of, quote, an indictment charging them with falsely representing themselves as agents for the Tennessee Valley Authority in the sale of newspaper advertising, end quote. The reason I point this out as a particularly humorous trial, though, is what the defense lawyers did next. They claimed that the TVA itself was illegal, so therefore the defendants couldn't have done anything wrong by pretending to be TVA employees. Quote, the defense has contended the TVA is unconstitutional and the defendants could not be guilty of posing as federal officers, even if proof showed that they posed as TVA representatives, End quote. That defense did not work. Pierce and Roach were both found guilty and sentenced to fines of $8,500 and $3,400,000, as well as prison sentences of 12 years and 5 years, respectively. I'm not sure how much of that was served out or paid, though.
0: While we're on the subject of historical markers, you live in a historic home here in Huntsville, and in the podcast you also talk about sort of looky loos who like to sit and gawk. Can you talk uh, from personal experience... (laughs) Why is that a no no? Why why should people not do that? What do you have any sort of horror stories of that? So, I will say I love when people stop and like take a
1: photo of old houses and I do that all the time. Um, so in that regard, yes, like appreciate the architecture. There was definitely a time um, when I was in grad school, I lived in 5 points in a historic house and I remember when I first moved in somebody warned me like, "Oh yeah, people will come by." And there's one time I was sitting reading a book and you know my cats are and we're in the front window um, just cuz natural light reading a book and some people like Standing and there was like this difference between staring versus I'm going to take a picture, nod, and, and keep walking. So definitely, and stay off the lawns. I've definitely seen some people get real creepy with that. Not on my house, thankfully, but with tours. Like, oh, I want to get a closer look at the uh, the windows, or oh, is the inside historical too? No, don't do that. They press their noses up against the glass. I'm sure it's. I've seen people get really close to some houses, and it's like, guys, someone lives there. So don't be, don't be creepy. But definitely, like, go on walks and appreciate the architecture for sure, because there are a lot of beautiful houses. But people live in those houses, So don't like, oh, let me see if I can creep up the driveway. I want to see if they've got, you know, is the garden in the back looking? At... Don't,
0: don't do that. I just kind of want to know from all you've you've learned so far, what historian or historic figure here in Huntsville, would you want to meet if time travel were real? Oh, so many. Um, <laughs> t- top, top one, uh, top one. Okay. If I had to pick just one, um,
1: one historian would definitely be um, Dr. Roberts. She uh, lends her name to some a lot of things at UAH. She was a history grad, um, doc- doctorate, uh, um she was I believe one of one of the first if not the first uh women to get a doctorate in history from Alabama. And she did a lot of really extensive research in Huntsville's history specifically and was one of the early members of the Historical Society. And so she just has so much knowledge. If I could meet a person from history, though, it would definitely be Charles Hendley, the uh, editor of the Gazette um, in the it was 1879 to 1894. Uh, and we'd love to talk to him about like, what all have you seen? What have you like things that you wrote about and edited? Like, what was that like in person?
0: And... I wanted to ask what we can expect in season three, because we're in progress of season two currently, but season three is imminent, I'm sure. What, What sort of topics would you like to cover? Later in seasons, I would love to look at
1: the trains, so let me actually, yeah, say so things that I'm interested in that I'm not going to talk about as much, the the train depot I would love to look more at, um, really places that either are museums or historic buildings that maybe people don't get to access as much. They were just like, oh, I've driven by that and never knew what that building was. Um, I also... Finding the quirkiest people that I can. Yeah,
0: um, I was gonna. I was gonna mention the voices of Huntsville, like some some people who deal with Huntsville's history. Maybe you'd like to talk to them or something.
1: Yes, and now that people know who I am, um, or at least like that I have a show and I can send links to say like, "Look, this is a real podcast, I'm a okay.
0: legit thing." <laughs> yeah, I was like, "This is real. This
1: is not just me being creepy and trying to get into like you know." The basement of the museum to look through your papers. Um, not that not, not that people are unwelcoming, but it's like I, I'm like I have street cred now. Hopefully, maybe I don't know. I would love to get more in depth on more of those stories that people don't get to hear as often, or places that it's like in my mind I'd go to that museum, but I don't know you know how big where it's like I would go to that, um, and at least share that story. Um, I mentioned the uh, the Black Business District. There are a lot of people there. I'd love to do a story on uh, Dr. Council as well as the historic train depot, uh, Montesano had a hotel and there was actually a little train that went up to that, which Lily flag had a party up there as well that she did not go to uh, fun fact. Um, I'm starting to think that Lily flag doesn't exist and never did. <laughs> there were a lot of parties and she just never showed up. Um, yeah. Lily flag actually did run down somebody with her uh, car once as well in front of TJ Eckelberg. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, uh, anyway um and I, w- I would love to do just going through old newspapers and just find like what is some weird news that happened and then just see what I can find from there um, as well as listener requests I've had I'm going to do a listener request episode but there are a few things people have sent in that I've just been like oh wow that I could talk for 20 minutes on that yeah so some of those if your request doesn't make it into the listener request episode it's probably because I'm going to keep talking about it even more later
0: <laughs> and is there anything else that you'd like to add today
1: Sue don't um, be afraid to contact like local libraries and archives, and just say, "Hey, I'm interested in this. Can I come look at this collection?" Like you don't have to have a podcast or anything to learn more about local history. Whether that's going on tours or going to museums, which you should definitely support our local museums uh, and libraries. But uh, I joke about like, "Oh, I have street cred, so I can go to these things." Honestly. You can just contact these people. Everybody I've dealt with has been super friendly, super welcoming. Everyone involved with this just wants people to learn. So even if there's a topic that, you know, there isn't an episode on, I mean, contact me. I'd love to do an episode on it. But you can go out on your own and try to find things. And it's it's a lot of trial and error. And it's a lot of staring at screens or old papers and trying to decipher cursive written by somebody who you can't really tell if those are actually letters or did they just draw lines. Um, There's a lot of that. But it's really fun. And I definitely encourage people who have things they're curious about to go look into that.
0: Well, thank you, Sue so much for being on my show today.
1: Thanks, and thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun, and uh, especially because we're doing it at the tea shop. Um, but thank you so much <laughs> for reaching out.